0: So last Lord's Day we considered the person and work of Christ in a very concerted way, considering his eternality, his preeminence, his creatorship, and his reconciliating work, reconciling work by making peace by the blood of his cross. That blood's the very fulfillment of the types and shadows under which the people of Israel lived for so long, bringing animals to sacrifice at the tabernacle or the temple. And yet no one was ever or no one was ever uh, forgiven, sanctified by the blood of bulls and goats. Those served as a foreshadowing of what was to come in the fullness of time. Full atonement by the blood of the God man. Paul now turns his attention from the substance of the atoning work to the subject of the atoning work, sinful mankind. And in the course of these few short verses this morning, we will see. How the reconciliation bought by Christ affects the past, present, and future of the people that he's called to himself. So turn with me again to Colossians 1. We'll look at verses 21 through 23 this morning, but we'll start reading in verse 15, the start of last week's text. He's the image of the invisible God stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now as we look into your word once again this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts, and that we would see, hear, and believe in Christ only. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as it turns out, we, who are the people addressed as the and you in verse 21, aren't, we're not anything like Christ at all. Jesus has been the beloved Son of the Eternal Father from eternity, but we are alienated. Jesus never committed a sin, but we happily do evil deeds. We were a wretched mess. We were once. Paul's reminding the Colossians of their past, and it's a past that they all universally shared, no matter whether they were Jew or Gentile. We all were once alienated from Yahweh, separated outside his covenant relationship. We were his sworn enemies, marked by original sin and completely satisfied to wallow in the sins that held us captive. Ephesians 1 verses 1 and 2 and also verse 12 paint this picture rather clearly Ephesians 1 verses 1 2 and 12 say and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked Following the course of this world Following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience And then to verse 12 remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. For those of us who know Christ, who have repented of our sins and believe in him, the thought of this alienation is horrifying. And in fact, the longer that we've lived in his embrace, believed in his name, Seen the forgiveness of sins in our own lives, living in covenant connection with our God, the thought of such alienation horrifies us even more. And yet this is how we all once lived. It's how many of our friends and neighbors live right now. It's the essence of the human condition, alienation and hostility of mind. We were happy to be enemies of our Creator, We were cosmic traitors against the Holy One, again to quote R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite quotes of his. We only cared about ourselves, about the passions of the body and the mind, to quote Ephesians 1 again. You could say that unregenerate mankind is most easily defined by what it hates, Yahweh, the Holy God. Enemies make war, enemies bring opposition, and yet biblically, Those enemies who opposed Yahweh and his people have been brought to an end. Enemies of Israel wrote a letter to King Artaxerxes, as accounted for in Ezra chapter 4, in order to slander the Jews to bring a halt to their divinely appointed reconstruction effort on the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. In fact, the crew that was working to rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple had to provide their own armed security. Ezra 8.22 says, For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. In 1 Samuel 18, King Saul is declared David's enemy because he feared him and he feared the loss of his throne. And yet another enemy in 1 Kings 21 twenty one uh, twenty, Ahab said to Elijah, "Have you found me, O my enemy?" He answered. Uh, he answered, "I have found you, because this is Elijah to Ahab. I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord." Ahab considered righteous Elijah and any other faithful prophet his enemy because he himself was an enemy of God. So these enemies, like all of us, did evil deeds, and they received just punishment for their wicked ways. Israel's enemies saw the temple and the whole city of Jerusalem return to its original condition and were brought to shame. Saul did lose his throne and ultimately his life in his opposition to God's will to make David king. Ahab was killed in battle, and that's accounted for in 1 Kings 22. He was killed anonymously in a battle where he went disguised and made the king of Judah be his decoy, thinking he could hide from Yahweh's will to bring him to his grave. Now, these are some dramatic examples from from Scripture, but the bottom line here is that every enemy of God must have his or her evil deeds dealt with, They either receive the penalty for them, themselves, or Jesus takes that penalty on their behalf. So let's remember here, Paul is reminding Christians that they once were enemies, alienated and hostile in mind. The Colossian church and and every believer that's here this morning can know that you are no longer an enemy of God because Christ has carried your sin and received the full punishment that you deserved for those sins. He is the propitiation for our sins, satisfying the wrath of God and removing those sins from you so that now, as it says in verse 22, Christ has now reconciled you. This is the bedrock of the Christian life. You don't reconcile yourself to God, Christ reconciles you to the Father. You don't reconcile yourself with endless penance and fasts and attempts to stock up merits of your own. You can only live the Christian life because Christ has given you life. Without reconciliation, none of us will be able to stand on the last day and enter the presence of our God. And how does Jesus reconcile you? He reconciled you in his body of flesh. This is why it's so preposterous for some people to accuse Christians of being Gnostics. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S, you can Google it if you haven't heard it before. Gnosticism was and is a cult that values the spiritual over the material, and it was a very popular cult at the time that Paul was writing this letter. The goal in Gnosticism is actually to rid yourself of the material world as much as possible in order to gain and retain spiritual depth and richness. That's foolishness, and this text is one of many texts in Scripture that makes that very clear. The highest spiritual work that we can conceive of, the reconciliation of countless souls to their maker by transferring the penalty of their sins to the sinless one is accomplished through one particular body of flesh, the body of Jesus Christ. I like the way that commentator Matthew Poole describes this phrase. In his commentary he said, "...the means whereby their reconciliation to God was purchased, which they had particularly applied by faith," and he cites, Colossians 1-4 for that, was the sacrifice of that fleshy, and then in parentheses, not fantastical body which Christ had assumed. A fleshy, not fantastical body. By design, Jesus took to himself an ordinary, fleshy body so as to be the perfect sacrifice, the final fulfillment of the entire Old Testament sacrificial system, which existed solely to point to Him. The people were looking forward to the day of Christ, and so they received grace. The forgiveness of sins mediated through the types and shadows of animal sacrifice until the day that the substance would come. Jesus' blood was true human blood. It wasn't metaphorical blood that was spilled on the idea of a cross. Real nails pierced real hands on a real hill that did actually kind of look a bit like a skull. That's why it was named the place of the skull, Golgotha. And in this, He made real reconciliation for his people. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The blood of Jesus' cross matters. Furthermore Romans 3:21 through 25 says but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there is no distinction for we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. The wages of sin is death. And for sinful people like us, Jesus tasted that death so that we could have new life. You could say our very lives as Christians are marked by death, the death of Christ, and then the resulting urge to put our own sins to death in the process of sanctification, a process that could never have occurred without the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ on the cross. Do you believe that? Do you feel that urge to be killing sin, or it will be killing you, to quote John Owen? It's an uncomfortable urge for us, but it's one that honors our God, who's diligently working to conform us more and more to the image of Christ, Christ who is the image of the invisible God to us. So why all this death talk? What's the purpose in all this blood for the purpose of reconciliation? It's to change you. It's it's to make you a new creation. We've been talking in the previous verse about the sinful past of the Colossians, and us as well. We've come now to the, the blessed present. The new status of this reconciled people. Remember, Yahweh has never done anything without a purpose. He always acts with purpose. He has a clear goal, and his purposes are never thwarted. He always accomplishes his purposes. So the the purpose of this reconciling work of Jesus on the cross is to present every believer as holy, blameless, and above reproach before the Father. Now, if we're maybe reading a little too fast in our morning devotions, looking at this text, trying to finish the passage before our coffee gets cold, uh, we might just think that Paul is saying the same thing three different times, just stacking up adjectives. Um, But these aren't identical terms. In fact, each of these are different words in the Greek. So Paul is compiling similar but distinct adjectives here. First, Christ sets us apart as holy, set apart, designated uh, as sanctified. Obviously not, not in the way that the sinless perfectionists mean. It's very much in the, in the formal sense. It's speaking of status. And as we continue in the faith, we will progress in that sanctification. But we will never become more holy by our conduct and our thoughts uh, without Jesus presenting us before the Father as holy in regard to our status before him. We'll never produce enough holy actions in our lives to earn that status before the Father. It must come only through the blood of Christ. You know, lots of people will divide the world and say that there are only two kinds of people in the world. Uh, I'm going to attempt that here as well. There are only two kinds of people in the world, sinful and holy. And the holy ones are only holy because the holy one has gifted it to them, not paid it to them as an earned reward. I'll say it again. The Holy Ones are only holy because the Holy One, the true and living God, has gifted that holiness to them, not paid it to them as an earned reward. Second, he presents us blameless. How can this be? We all have sins. We all have a history of sin. How can we be blameless when we're guilty because all of our blame before God has been placed on Jesus if we believe in him. If you have repented of your sins and believed in Christ, there is no basis for the Father to place any blame on you. Christ has made you spotless in the eyes of the Father. I hope this verse is echoing in the back of your mind This verse that we repeat so often, Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I'll say it again in case you didn't hear it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. All the blame, all the cause for condemnation is absolutely gone, wiped away in Christ Ephesians 5.27, it's all wiped away in Christ so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot, blameless, or wrinkle or any such thing that he might be, that she might be holy and without blemish. So the Greek word in our text for blameless here is actually rendered in Ephesians 5.27 as without blemish. It's the same Greek word. It's having a clean record before God. Our filthy garments swapped out for the righteous robes of the King of glory. I think this folds in nicely with that third adjective, above reproach. That may sound familiar to us if we know those passages in 1 Timothy and Titus that speak of the qualifications of an elder or a deacon, referring to the, the character and the conduct that matches the confession Of the man. But this being above reproach is for every Christian. There's no distinction made here. Paul was writing to a mixed multitude of believers older men, older women, younger men, younger women, boys and girls. Some would have been elders and deacons, but many would not have been in any church office. And yet, This work of Christ in making them above reproach is the same for all. I think this phrase is a perfect way to show the root versus fruit of the Christian life. All three of these attributes are speaking of the status of the believer before God Almighty. So that in Christ, having been washed in his blood, all our sins forgiven, our Heavenly Father sees us this way holy and blameless without cause for reproach. And the reason he sees us this way is precisely because Jesus is all of these things. He is holy. There's no one like him. He's spotless, an unblemished, sacrificial lamb who perfectly redeems every single one of his people. He is utterly without reproach. He never sinned. He never had any true reason to even be brought to to court and accused of wrongdoing. It was actually the hatred and lies of the Jewish leadership that brought him to that unorthodox court and led to his crucifixion. In his death and in his rising again, he has placed us under these same categories with him, clothed us with his righteousness, so that when our Father looks at us, he sees Jesus covering us. That's very good news. Because of this awesome truth, which none of us deserve, that is why we can boldly and clearly declare that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Please hear. That if you have repented and believed in jesus christ as your savior he has replaced your filthy garments and he's wrapped you in his royal robes you are no longer strangers and enemies you are beloved friends brothers and sisters to christ who bought you with his own blood you have a new status in him because of him the darkness has not overcome the light which shines on you Now this new status is the driving force behind our Christian life. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. Because we've been made holy, we seek to live a holy life. Because we've been made blameless, we seek to kill our sins and never see their spots on us again. Because we have been made above reproach, we seek to live humble and righteous lives before the face of God living our lives in accordance with his word and for the glory of his name. Our third division looks toward the future for the Christian, and it touches on the topic of perseverance. If indeed you continue in the faith, at the beginning of verse 23. Now Paul isn't speaking conditionally here, as if you could only get all of these promised, uh, all this promised status and, and blessings through God only if you continue in your own power, and then if you don't, then it's game over for you. I actually checked several notes on this point, and I found this, this gem in the ESV study Bible, which is a resource I get a lot of benefit from. In the, in the study notes from, this, from the study Bible, speaking of this phrase, The notes say the form of this phrase in Greek indicates that Paul fully expects that the Colossian believers will continue in the faith. No doubt is expressed here. It's not a conditional statement. And so far be it from me to try to express doubt where the Apostle Paul, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, shows none at all. This is an exhortation to perseverance, and we all need as much encouragement in that as we can get. We need to be provoked to persevere, not at the risk of our our own reconciliation to God, but as an advancement in progressive sanctification, being more and more conformed to the image of Christ, who is our Savior. 1 Peter 1.5 says... We persevere because we're being guarded by faith, by God's own power, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It says, until we require it. There is no doubt of that future being expressed here in this text either. No doubts. When we are reconciled to God through Christ, we persevere. Christ's work is final, and it it can't be undone. We continue in the faith, a faith that's grounded in the word of God. 1 Timothy 3.14 But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The 1689 London Baptist Confession In Chapter 17 Paragraph 2 I think summarizes this doctrine of perseverance very well The Confession says this perseverance of the Saints depends not upon their own free will but upon the immutability of the decree of Election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ in union with him the oath of God the abiding of his spirit, in the seed of God within them, in the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. Now here in our text today, speaking of perseverance, there are two descriptors of our perseverance which inform how we stand, how we persevere. Verse 23, it says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Again, these are two unique Greek words that go together very well. Stable, the Greek word rendered as stable here, can also be translated as established. One of the passages that contains that very word is Jesus' parable of the two houses in the, in the two Uh, foundations matthew 7 verses 24 through 27 says everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it could this get any more perfect our reconciliation in christ provides an even more sure foundation than this house that can withstand such a torrential storm after all, we have to remember a metaphor always pales in comparison to what it describes. It can never be greater. With our faith founded on the bedrock of Christ's work on our behalf, we can be assured that His mighty hand will hold on to us and preserve us. We take our refuge in Him. Similarly we're told to stand steadfast or immovable. The Greek word here is only used three times in the New Testament. In this verse, and twice in 1 Corinthians, in each instance of this word has to do with a Christian's resolution to follow Christ and to do right. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 37, talks of being Firmly established in the heart. <clears throat> and First Corinthians 15, 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So if stability is about where our feet are planted, on the solid rock of Christ and his work on our behalf then this steadfastness is about our desire to stand firm there and to act in joyful obedience to him the eminent baptist theologian john gill wrote on this topic of stability and steadfastness in his commentary on this passage. Gill writes, not on the sandy foundation of man's own righteousness, and peace made by his own performances, but upon the foundation and rock, Christ, against which the gates of hell cannot prevail, and so shall never be finally and total shall never finally and totally fall away, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith of him, in the doctrines of faith, respecting peace by his blood, justification by his righteousness, and life by his death, and so continue steadfast and immovable, always abounding in his work. So we stand stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. You know, after all that we've considered last Lord's Day, and then in this text already this morning, why would we ever consider shifting from the hope of the gospel? The promises are so clear and so rich. Why would we ever desire something else? It's because we so easily forget the promises of our covenant-keeping God. We shift from the hope of the gospel when we try to blend our own works with God's grace and try to maintain our salvation by our own efforts. We shift from the hope of the gospel when we tell ourselves we've lost the atonement every time we believe, every, every time that we sin and we risk losing our belief, we shift from the hope of the gospel. We shift from the hope of the gospel when we adjust the proclamation of the gospel to fit things that our sinful culture values. Our sinful desire yearns for what is not hope. The old man looks for every opportunity to return to the sin that we've repented of. The pig returns to the muck, the dog to its own vomit. This shifting is exactly like the other house in Jesus' parable. The house built on the sand shifts because it has no foundation. It has no basis on which to stand against the wind and the rain, and it topples down and gets swept away without a trace. It's hopeless. So what is this hope of the gospel? If, if you would like to turn to First Peter 1, I think there's a text in this chapter uh, that tells us this rather nicely. First Peter 1 verses 13 through 21. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. He's redeemed us with the blood of Christ spilled for us. He judges impartially and he judges based on Jesus' righteousness, which he's given to us. Thus, our faith and hope are in God, not in ourselves, not in any of our deeds. Yahweh is the hope of the gospel. The gospel of the grace of God is the gospel that the Colossians heard from Paul. It's the same gospel that God has been using to save souls ever since. There is no other gospel. And people across the world have heard this glorious gospel. After all, Paul is just one of the apostles going through the world, all the known world of the time, and boldly proclaiming that word of truth. That's the Great Commission, isn't it? To go into all the world, proclaiming the good news, baptizing the nations and teaching them. The Great Commission is why we're here in the boonies of North America, worshiping the risen Christ this morning, in a place that perhaps the Apostle Paul would have been amazed to see. It's by God's grace alone that missionaries in evangelistic movements have crisscrossed the globe through history, bringing testimony of Christ with them to people who had never heard. In Christ's church expanding into new regions of the world. And there are still plenty of lost souls that need to hear this word. Finally, Paul places himself under this gospel. He doesn't own it, right? He didn't develop it. This gospel wasn't his brainchild. He became, or we could say was remade into, a minister of this Gospel. Let's consider for a moment the the road that Paul walked to become a minister of the Gospel of the grace of God. In Philippians 3 verses 4 through 11, Paul says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, so he thought. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It was the same Paul, confessing his faith here, who's described in Acts as breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That is the disposition of an enemy, of someone who's alienated and hostile in mind. It, it could be the, the, the textbook definition of that very kind of person considering verse 21 once more. Paul had the same sin nature that all of us have, and he acted out of his depravity in bold and conspicuous fashion, but as a religious zealot, thinking he was righteous for doing so. In fact, even Ananias, whom Christ sends to Paul while he's still blinded from his encounter with Christ on the road, tells Jesus he's heard of the evil works that Paul has done against the church. And yet, we should also remember that the same Jesus who teaches us to love our enemies loved his enemies in a way that we never could. He died to make them brothers and sisters. He reconciled them by the blood of his cross. Paul, this sworn enemy of Christ and his church, was reconciled, was made a new creation in Christ and was commissioned to proclaim this same gospel to the Gentiles. The taste of that reconciliation must have been unbelievably sweet to Paul, who had been instrumental in the death of so many Christians, even happily holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen. I hope that we, whether we've been so blatant in our sins or not, can also taste that same sweetness. Of the Father's grace toward us in Christ. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only Son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss the Father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. We may ask ourselves when we consider the cross of Christ, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. That same reconciling power that transformed Paul from a murderous persecutor to apostle of Jesus Christ and minister of the gospel, That same ransom-paying wound of Jesus in his body on the tree is the same reconciling power at work in every single believer who's ever lived. Believe in him. Trust in him. Treasure him from the depths of the new heart that he's given you as you contemplate how deep the Father's love for us. Meditate on this grace as we approach the Lord's table in just a few minutes. Remember the covenant that He has brought you into as a fellow heir. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He's been kind to the ungodly and the wicked. He's called us friends. He has reconciled us. The reconciled people of God sing these words with conviction. Man of sorrows, what a name, for the Son of God who came Ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransom home to bring, then anew his song will sing, hallelujah, what a savior. Let's pray. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are your judgments, God, and how inscrutable your ways. And yet you've revealed your will for us in your word. We thank you for the work of redemption through Jesus Christ for us. Help us to lean on him for everything. Help us to remember the grace that's ours in him and to never stray from the hope of the gospel. Remind us of all this now as we come to your table. It's in the name of Christ I pray, amen.